0: It is a joy to sing together as a church, isn't it? It's just a joy to sing together as a church family. And I'm just reminded that it is a family. Um, it's not just individuals singing here, we are singing together. Um, and I just want to invite you all to, uh, if you're kind of newer, uh, to um, join in one of our different ways to connect with this church family. Um, this coming Saturday, by the way, uh, for, for all men in the church, we're having a big breakfast in celebration of Father's Day, um, which is next Sunday, um, not too late to get those gifts for dad, um, my wife's not even here today, but my kid is, it's not too late, um. Anyway, big breakfast this coming Saturday. I'm lost. Yeah, Big breakfast this Saturday, 9 a.m., not just for dads, but for any men. And down that way, is that what our, our ringleader is? Oh, there's a sign-up sheet. There's a sign-up sheet out in the foyer. So after the worship service, go out and sign up for the big breakfast this Saturday, 9 o'clock. And if you've never come to one of our men's meetings, just come. We'll have a great time, and you have an awesome breakfast. Um, We are finishing our intervention sermon uh, series today. It's not really a Holy Spirit sermon. You can come back next week for um, one of those, but today uh, we're going to look at the, um, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. So if you brought your Bible, take it out, turn to Isaiah 53. It's in the Old Testament, a um, little more than halfway through your Bible. If you did not bring a Bible, you can find one in one of the seats in front of you. And uh, turn to page 731 if you're using one of our Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, by the way, I would love to give you one. You can see me after the worship service, and we'll go get a Bible. Uh, Let's read verses 4 through 11. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So we're talking about God intervening in our life, and today uh, we're looking at having peace with God. Can you really have peace with God? Can you know? If you have peace with God, and what does it mean to have peace with God? Um, for some people, having peace with God—if um, you were to ask many people, you have peace with God?"—well, maybe, yes. What does it mean to you? You probably get an answer like this: that I'm um, having peace with God means that I don't have to fear God throwing me to hell when I die. And, and that's about as far as their peace with God goes, just not fearing damnation um, from God. Now, is that peace with God? Well, that's not the full picture of biblical peace with God. Um, so I want to put this up. This is not a definition of peace, but it's just things that I think of when I think of peace with God. Peace with God in the Bible is something that you have when you know that God knows you, God is pleased with you, and God is doing good for you. He knows you, He's pleased with you, and He's doing good for you. Can you really have that kind of peace with God? Isaiah 53 is the answer. It's one of the most important scriptures, I think, in the Old Testament. What does it say about us having peace with God? So, to get at that, I want to take us through a little Bible study... Of the Old Testament, we're going to roll up our sleeves a little bit. For those of you that like Bible study, you're probably pretty excited. Um, if you don't, just roll up your sleeves; it'll be over quickly. Um, Bible study in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. Actually, we see it a little bit throughout the whole Bible, but a lot in the Old Testament. This pattern, and and we see patterns every once in a while in the Scriptures. And it's important to look at patterns because patterns teach us principles. Biblical principles and truths. And so here's the pattern. Uh, You can put this in the fill-ins in your note sheet if you would like to. Uh, Land, law, rebellion, exile. And we'll talk about what that is, but that's the pattern. Land, law, rebellion, and exile. Um, In ancient times, land was really important. We think that land is important today. In ancient times, it was really important because it meant peace for a landowner. Today, you know, if you own land, well, that's great. If you don't own land, it's not that big of a deal. People can be very secure today um, and not be a landowner. Back in ancient times, owning land was—it was—it was your. It's your roadmap for peace and prosperity. It's where you grew your crops. If you were hungry back then, you couldn't just go down to HEB. You needed to get stuff off your land. Um, it's where you watered and fed your livestock. Um, it it, it was—it's just hard to overstate how important land was back in ancient time. It was—it was your means for security, safety and and welfare. And then you could pass it on to your descendants. So land meant you could prosper and then your generations after you could, could prosper. And we see God giving the gift of land. Actually, we see God giving the gift of land. You might not have thought about this. In the very first verse of the Bible. So look, think about that. Very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word earth there, um, if you look at the old ancient Hebrew language, it's, it's the, the word for, the very commonly word in the Bible, for land. In the beginning, God gave land. Uh, the creation story is much more than just telling of the original creation. It is telling about God bringing peace to his people. That it creates, because that's what land meant—meant meant peace. And uh, the way that God creates this haven that He would later fill with people was really important, um, because how does God create? If you think about the Genesis story, what does He do? He doesn't get out His tools. He He speaks. He gives a command. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a, a, a separation between the waters below and the waters above. And there was. There was light. There was there was sky. Let, let there be a separation of the waters below so that land can appear. And there was. So what we see in the Genesis chapter 1 story of creation is how, how the world, how people following, uh, living in this land, could experience peace. And that is... Creation shows you. You obey the command of God. You obey the word of God. That's what creation does. It obeys God's commands, does what God says, and we have light. We have oxygen. We have an atmosphere. We have, we have land to live on. The roadmap for peace and security is following the commands of God. Just like the original creation, the earth that God created, did when God spoke. The result is this stable, orderly, peaceful home for human beings. Um, By the way, uh, if you have taken a world history class lately, some of you guys may have taken a world history class lately. Um, If you know about your ancient world religions, you'll recognize that the Genesis 1 story of how God created the world is completely different. It's a completely different story of how the world came to be than almost any other ancient religions. Because ancient religions would say, many other would say, that the world was formed by a chaotic battle between forces of good and evil, right? It was was an evil god and a good god really duking it out. And the aftermath is the world. That's what many other ancient religions say. Christianity says, no, 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 no. The world happened because... God spoke, and the created matter obeyed what God said. All right, so that's the importance of land. That's what we see in the original creation. Let's go through this pattern of land, law, rebellion, and exile. So the first time that we see this pattern is Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden. Verse 8. Of Genesis 2 says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he formed. And so, where, where's the land? And the pattern of the land is the garden, right? Lucky Adam. He lives in this beautiful garden. Uh, once he puts man in that home, if you'll remember the story, he gives him law. He gives him instructions. So, Verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Really? Was it poisonous? Um, It's interesting when we see death connected with what would amount to the very first sin that human beings create uh committed. So hang on to that thought. Death me uh sin means death. So uh God gives man the law and the law is what? It's okay, don't eat that one fruit. It's interesting the description of the garden that God gave Adam and to the woman that he gave Adam, Eve um, together. The description of the garden says that there's plenty of other fruits. There's plenty of other trees, all kinds of trees that were bearing good fruit to eat. And um, here is where this new element of the story comes in, and that is rebellion. And what's the rebellion in Genesis chapter 2? They ate the fruit, that one fruit that God said, do not eat. Now it's interesting uh, when you look at God's reaction to them eating the fruit, because it's interesting to think of what God does not say after Adam and Eve eat this fruit that was forbidden to them. God does not say, Oh, okay, you might not have understood me, understood me the first time. Let me be a little more clear this time. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, Oh, you ate the fruit, oh golly, you know. Try better next time. You know, God doesn't say that. What happens? We have the last piece of our pattern that that is exile. Adam and Eve are banished from from the garden. And it doesn't take but one chapter in the Bible for us to see this pattern again. It is a pattern. We see it repeated. So you see it right after this. Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are the two sons of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. They go settle off somewhere nearby. That's the land in this pattern, by the way. It's the new home for Adam and Eve. And uh, then Cain and Abel, their sons. And there is... um, Well, so let's talk about Cain and Abel, their brothers. And uh, Cain becomes jealous of Abel. And it's kind of hard to think of brothers being jealous of one another. Rarely happens today, but back... Then it happened, and they were, Cain got jealous. Uh, God gave him law, and this is the instruction that God gave to him. Uh, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted by, by me, he's saying? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it instead. So there's this law. Do what is right. Don't give in to sin. Uh, and you might know the story. Cain gives in to his jealousy. He gives in to sin. And there's the rebellion. What's the rebellion in the story? It's murder. He, Cain, kills Abel. And uh, God exiles him away. Cain says... Uh, to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear today. You are driving me from the land. See, there's this exile and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So there's that exile banishment from home and away from God's presence. And we see this pattern throughout the old Testament. Um, I want you to think a couple of, well, yeah, a couple books later in the Bible, um, long storyline about the Israelites getting out into the wilderness. Uh, The ancient Israelite people, you might remember, they were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God said, I'm going to free you from slavery. I'm going to give you a land of your own. And so we see this land. It's the promised land. And. God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, parts the Red Sea, remember that? And they go through the Red Sea, and they're, they're out wandering in the wilderness now. And there's something important that God gives to the Israelites when they're wandering in the wilderness. Do you remember what God gives to them? He gives them several things, but pretty important one. Ten Commandments. God gives them the law. And... The Israelites, in multiple ways, are not able to keep the law. So there's this rebellion, and they create idols, and they they don't trust God because they have other idols. So there's this rebellion against God, not trusting Him and following Him and being obedient to Him. And then there's the exile. And in this case, that exile is God makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation of people who were not trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord and worshiping false idols, they all die. And they're not able to go into the promised land. So one more. Let's talk about when we see that pattern with them actually getting into the promised land. Um, And we'll we'll just leave up all four of them. There's the land, the promised land. Uh, the law, they still have the Ten Commandments, and they, again, are not able to follow those commandments. There's this rebellion against God's law, and it lasts for hundreds of years, this rebellion. And it gets so bad that this land that God gave to the ancient, Israels, to the ancient Israelites that we hear about all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God gives this land to Abraham, And he brings the Israelites back to it. And they live there for hundreds of years. Their rebellion gets so bad that God exiles the Israelites away from that promised land. And the northern half of Israel goes off to Assyria, captured by the Assyrians. And the southern Israelites, they get captured by the Babylonians. And there's this exile. Alright. So that's the Bible study. Uh, This pattern that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. Land which means what for people? It means peace, security, safety, welfare. There's law, rebellion, and exile. That's the pattern. Now what does that pattern tell us? One thing it tells us is something about the nature of God. And it's this. God is holy and will not wink at sin. He's holy and he will not wink at sin. Now, there is a cost that must be paid because of sin, and God will see to it. Let's talk about the good side of that and then kind of the sobering side of that. Um, the good side of that is this God will not let injustice stand. God will not let injustice stand. We, deep down inside, we want justice to happen, don't we? Some maybe more than others. But it's, it's just this common thread of the human heart. We want justice to prevail. And God will bring justice. You should be glad about that. Because um, can you imagine if great injustices were done to you and God were to say, eh, too bad. You know, think Enron, right? Not too long ago, right here in Houston, where people had their life savings taken from them through white-collar crime. Stolen from them. What if that happened to you and you were to plea out to God, God, what are you going to do about this? And God were to say, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Say la vie. You know, well. Boys will be boys, you know, what? You want justice to happen and God will bring justice. And if he were not to bring justice, he would not be a compelling God at all, would he? If God did not bring justice to this world, he would not be a God worth worshiping. God is a God of justice. He will see justice. That's the good side of all this. There's also the sobering side. Um, and we see this, too, and it's one of the great truths of sin. And here's the sobering side. Every sin, no matter how small it seems, is completely sufficient in casting me away from God's presence and receiving a death penalty. That's the sobering side. Receives a death penalty. I don't have the scripture on the screen, but Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is, all you Romans experts, death. The wages of sin is death. See, I may try to give myself peace by saying, well, okay, yeah, yeah I sinned, but it's not that bad. I mean, I I haven't taken anyone's life, for goodness sakes. I haven't stolen anyone's life savings. Um, I've never, you know, killed anyone. How bad can it be for me? Yeah, I can try that kind of rationalizing in my mind, but it will do... No good at all. And all we have to do is think back to Genesis. You know, Cain kills his brother. Yeah, you know, that's pretty bad. Well, what did Adam and Eve do to God said, you will die? What did they do? They just ate a fruit. I mean, there was no grand larceny in that. They were not killing anyone in that. They just ate a fruit that God said, just for the sake of me and my authority and your life. Don't eat the fruit. And they are banished from this garden. They get the death sentence. If God really will get justice for sin, which He will, then it seems that I'm in trouble, therefore. And one of the places we see this is in Psalm 24. Psalm 24 asks, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessings from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. And, my friends, there are, there are days when I look at my hands and I say, they, they don't seem very clean, and my heart does not seem very pure. And this psalm says, who can, who can be in God's presence? Those are the clean hands and a, and a, and a pure heart. If the only person who can be with God is the one who has a pure heart and clean hands and I'm out of luck, and we are all out of luck. We've all been disqualified from receiving God's blessings. So back to this question posed earlier, how can we have peace with God, therefore? And the answer is in Isaiah chapter 53. You know this part of Isaiah was actually written to those Israelites that got so rebellious that God exiled them out of the promised land, exiled them way off in Babylon. This part of Isaiah was written as comfort for them, as a promise of peace for them. And They were all well aware that God does not wink at sin because they had been sinning. God did not wink. They were stuck in Babylon as exiles. And yet it's a promise of peace. How so? The answer is that someone else paid the cost of their sin and purchased their peace. So look at verse verse 5, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. The the punishment that brought us peace was on him. Peace. They're in Babylon. You got peace. He was cut off. Verse verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living, Land meant peace. He was cut off the land of the living. He was cut off from peace so that others could receive peace. Verse 10, his life is a sin offering and animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were slain. they were Their life was taken and it brought atonement. That meant that two parties, two, two entities or two people would be made at one again. That's what atonement is, is being made at one with another. Verse 10 says he's an offering that will bring atonement. Verse 11, my righteous servant, God says, will justify many, will satisfy God's justice. Now, who's the servant? Who's the servant? You know who the servant is, it's Jesus. It is God himself who demands justice, but loves us so much that he himself takes the punishment. So many of you knew Jesus. Yeah, that's the answer. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Have you really thought through what the peace that Jesus brings you, really means to you, really means in a practical way to your life. Many people just don't know this peace in their heart. Because people often see God in, in one of two ways. I want to talk about these two ways that people often see God. Neither leads to peace. So one incomplete way people see God is God is primarily the demanding lawgiver. They see God as the police. They see God as the judge. That's who God is. He's the one that won't weaken sin, right? He's the demanding lawgiver. Uh, so let's look at this belief. When you believe that God is the demanding lawgiver, you, you may believe that God has legally acquitted you because the, the judge can't do that. He can legally acquit someone from their crimes. You, you're found not guilty. You're released from your crimes. There's this legal acquittance, not guilty. Um, So God is the judge who has declared no punishment is necessary. So, second point, you don't have to fear going to hell. Remember, that's what a lot of people think of. Yeah, i got peace with God. I don't have to fear going to hell. Okay, that may be true. But if you see God as the demanding lawgiver, how does God really feel about me? I know there's this, been this legal decision, declaration from the judge, no punishments necessary, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm forgive, forgiven uh, of my sin. I know that's true, but how does God really feel about me? When he thinks of me, what is he thinking? Is he grumbling about how I keep messing up? How does God feel about me? And if you see God as the demanding lawgiver, you won't really have peace with God because you'll be wondering, how how's God feel about me? Is he, is he angry with me? Is he just kind of put off with all my mistakes? So that's one incomplete way of seeing God. The other incomplete way of seeing God is God is primarily the soft-hearted pushover. And this is the idea of, of God being um, just this ball of love. God loves everyone and cannot turn anyone away. So God appears as a big, warm ball of impersonal love that's that 's what a lot of people believe about god he's just he's love he, he's he's kind of soft and light and love, but if that's all that God is is this just nothing but love, 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 and he loves everyone he can't help but loving everyone because. That's all he is. He's love. Then we get the same question. How does God really feel about me? I mean, there's there's no personal quality of that love, is there? It's just love. But what, how does he really feel about me? Does he really see what's going on in my life? And and so the, the, the result of the end is, is you won't really have peace with God because God might not come across as very personal to you. Isaiah 53 shows God is both completely the demanding lawgiver and also completely loving. You have to have two of those together. God is both demanding justice and He is both completely loving. He's the full God. And because he's the full God, I love how Tim Keller puts this. One of the best sentiments about how you can know God feels about you is this. God is so full of justice that he had to die for you, but he's so full of love that he was glad to die for you. My friends, that is how God feels about you. He was glad to die for you. How do you know that he was glad to die for you? Look at chapter uh, 53 verse 11 one more time. I remember, this is from the New Living Translation. It puts it a little differently, but this is, this is true. Look at the Hebrew. It's put well. When he sees, when the suffering servant sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And that word satisfied has the meaning of like this, you, you eat this delicious meal. And you're just so overflowing with satisfaction. It just hit the spot. It wasn't just like, I'm kind of satisfied. It was, oh, you're so satisfied. It's deep satisfaction. It was exactly what you were craving and you had your fill. So what is this saying? That Jesus, when he died for you, he was overjoyed because he was able to do it for you. He was overjoyed in his death. Because he was able to die for you. This is what that is saying. How does God feel about you? He is overjoyed in his death because he was able to die for you. Why? Because he absolutely loves you. So do you have peace in your life? Or are you always fearing the worst is going to happen because I don't know how God feels about me? Is God going to withhold is best from me? Is he going to just kind of slight me because he's angry with me today? God is not against you. He is delighted in you. Jesus has joyfully taken your punishment so that you can have his life. And so now, God sees us with clean hands and with a pure heart. So now, you can ascend that mountain. You can stand in God's presence. The question this morning is, how are you going to apply this promise of peace with God? And maybe this morning you're like, I, I don't have peace with God. I, I haven't really received this gift of forgiveness. I've never said thank you. I've never, I've never really acknowledged Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, who died for me. And you can do that this morning. You can, you can say thank you, God, for dying in my place on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ, and I receive your peace. You can do that. Or maybe, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something in your life and you just can't get rid of fear about it. And you fear it, and you fear it, and you fear it. And you want to say, oh, I finally knew that God was for me. Things, I, I think I'd, I'd feel different. I think I would be completely different about this. God is for you. God is for you. Grab a hold of that piece. Where do you need to apply it? Let's pray. Our God of mercy and our God of grace, we we thank you this morning. We thank you for what you have done years and years ago through the suffering of your Son, Jesus Christ, what you've done for us. We thank you that we now have peace. And we pray that you would help us to see with spiritual eyes. It's so hard seeing things, Lord, because we, we just look with our physical eyes and, and we see things that make us scared and we see all, all sorts of havoc sometimes. And we don't know if how you feel about us. Help us to see with spiritual eyes, trusting in the promise of your love, the promise that you are joyful over us. You rejoice over us with singing, is one of what one of the Old Testament prophets said. Help us to know your delight in us. And, and, Lord, maybe you'll bring up this morning one area in our life where we can apply this peace to and stand on your peace, stand on your love, Know that the death sentence from our sins is no more. And instead, all that you want for us is abundant life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.